Take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. As you're turning, I want to share greetings from uh, Brother Jim Price. I talked to him, I believe it was Monday or Tuesday uh, this week. They were in Manitoba, and uh, he wanted to ask me to greet the folks here. He also, uh, because they've been so busy and on the road, hadn't had a chance, but and I think he sent a letter as well, but he asked me to thank the church for the, uh, the Christmas gift uh, that we sent. Said it was a great blessing and a help. Be praying for uh, Brother Jim as they uh, continue travels and raising support. And I wanted to share that greeting with you. Ephesians chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 4 through 10. I'm going to talk about four proofs of God's love. Four proofs. Now... There's a whole lot more than that. I was talking with Brother Colton uh, for a few moments this afternoon. We're talking about math. Uh, that's not a that's a weird Sunday afternoon discussion, mathematics. And we're talking about uh, calculus. That's an even weirder Sunday afternoon. Amen, Brother Maud. That's a weird afternoon discussion. And I was explaining a couple things and talking about proofs. And uh, I hated proofs. I hate proving anything in mathematics because when I did math, my brain isn't wired like everybody else's brain. Your brain works and my brain doesn't work. And uh, my circuits are wired all different. And uh, I can find the answer, but I don't follow the same path you, found, you followed to get it. And uh, I used to go back and forth with my math teacher over some of my proofs. Uh, and I would say, look, is my answer right or not? Yes, but you couldn't have got the answer the way you did it. I said, look, did I get the answer right or not? And we would go back and forth, and I, I probably should have been a little more uh, submissive to her. But uh, I, I didn't like showing proofs. God likes to show proofs. And by the way, he proves every day his love for you. His mercy is new every morning. Amen. Every morning when you see the sun come up, teenagers... Did you know that that thing, the, the, the bright thing up in the sky, it actually disappears at night and it comes back up early in the morning? Uh, it's not always in the sky, but when it comes up every morning, uh, it's a reminder that he rose from the dead, a reminder of his love for us. And we, we could look at hundreds and thousands of proofs tonight, but I just in this one little passage in Ephesians chapter 2, I want to take a few moments uh, just to enjoy uh, some time together in his word, uh, just to relish in what God's done. Uh, just to praise him, just to worship him tonight. Look with me here, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Let's pray together. Lord, my heart tonight, my desire is that we would worship you and glorify you this evening. Lord, you're worthy of our praise. Lord, we get a few glimpses into heaven you've given us in your word. 
Lord, John would have written much more if you would have allowed him, but the few glimpses that you allowed John to give us, Lord, it seems every time I see through the windows of heaven, I see worship and I see praise. And Lord, tonight I pray as you taught the disciples to pray, would you make it a little bit like heaven on earth tonight? God, would you help us to worship you a little bit tonight the way we will worship you forever in heaven. Lord, someday we will bow before the throne and cry out with the angels and cry out with the saints of God, worthy is the Lamb. But Lord, tonight you're already worthy. Lord, thank you for your great love for us. Help us tonight, Lord, to direct our worship and our praise to you as we look at these proofs of your love for us. Help me, Lord, to preach you right your truth. God, may you be glorified. In your precious name we pray. Amen. What would God have to do to prove his love for you? What would it take for us to say, I know, I know without a doubt that God loves me. And Would it take more money? Would it take better health? Would it take greater happiness in your life? More comfort? A better job? A bigger house? A newer car? What would it take? March 31st, 1995, I think it was. I think that's right, maybe 94. My wife will correct me later. That was my birthday. By the way, there's just a few shopping days left to my birthday. Be aware of that. <laughs> but my wife and I had been dating. We had our first date December 7th, maybe, or 8th. And then this is March 31st. It was a little over three and a half months later. I met her that day as I was going out to go to work. And she gave me a cupcake. It was a Otis Spunkmeyer, I think. Uh, chocolate, double chocolate, I think. Chocolate chip, chocolate cupcake. She had a candle on it. Uh, you know, she couldn't bake a cake in her room, so she bought a cupcake. And did you give me something else that day? I don't remember. I don't think so. She's a cheapskate. And uh, she gave me that cupcake <laughs> and as a birthday gift. And that day... As I was driving to work, as I got in my 1977 Ford Granada piece of garbage, and as I was going to work, me and my buddies, I looked over at the fellow who was my best friend in Bible college. His name's Jeremy. I talked to him just a couple weeks ago. It was his, it was his birthday, actually, a couple weeks ago. I looked over at him, and I said, Jeremy, I'm going to marry Carrie. I'm going to... I'm going to ask her to marry me at Christmas, and we're going to get married next summer. And he said, does she know this? I said, no, but I'm going to tell her. Now, when my wife heard that story later, she decided it must have been the cupcake. So, so girls, that's the secret. you got to give the cupcakes. But the cupcake had nothing to do with it. Too many times, all the little things that we think we want from God, they have nothing to do with God's love. 
But I want us to look tonight at some things that do have everything to do with the love of God. Everything God does, everything God does, he does for a specific purpose. He, he does nothing without cause. He does nothing without purpose. His efforts to mankind are always, if we look in the, the account of creation in Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament into the New Testament, we see that God is always dealing with man to show man his love. Always. He, he, he loves us. He, he does nothing by chance. God does nothing in desperation. There's a wonderful old song, and part of that song goes, of you know, God searched through heaven looking for... God didn't search through heaven. I, I, I like the song. I, I understand the premise. Salvation was not a desperation move. God didn't have to scramble and back in the, the back. Oh, no, man, what am I going to do now? Man, sin. Where do I throw the ball? No, it was planned from eternity. It always was. God knew. So everything God does and everything God has ever done is for because he loves man. God never throws anybody away. For a little over a year now, God's put a burden on my heart. I'm going to have to do something about it pretty soon, but God's burdened me to, to do something that is pretty outside my normal wheelhouse. But I'm, I guess the Lord's going to, I'm either going to do it or God's going to kill me probably God's burdened me to write a book with that premise of don't throw them away we live in a culture today Christian culture where we give the gospel out and we try to reach people and so many churches if that person we reach is not the instant Christian that we think they ought to be if they don't look the way we think they ought to look and talk the way we think they ought to talk and do everything exactly the way we think they ought to in a couple of weeks, we want to toss them away and get started again. God doesn't do that. I love the story in the book of Jeremiah. In the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah went down to the potter's house and he looked through the window and watched the potter as he worked at the wheel. And he watched as the potter broke the vessel. But he didn't throw the clay away. He simply started again. Christian, we need to understand the love of God, that God doesn't throw you away. He doesn't throw me away. He desires to use us and to mold us and to make us. Now, does that mean that we're, I'm going to be able to do everything God has wanted me to do? There are times that because of some brokenness that I can't be all that God had wanted would want for me but that doesn't mean God throws me away I love the picture there of Jeremiah as he looks in the potter's house we look at God's love so often through what happens to us daily we look at it as wow something good happened today God loves me 
Oh, man, today was a bad day. Brother Maude fell on the stairs. Boy, it's a bad day. God must not love me. I'm a little worried. My enemy is now attacking you. We have the same enemy, the stairs. We look at, oh, this is good. Okay, I have a good day. This is bad. I've got a good day. Most of you probably know this. My family knows this for sure. If anyone asks me how I'm doing, what do I say, Rebecca? How are you? I say, I'm beautiful. Exactly. No, I'm not beautiful. But I've learned not to gauge how I'm doing according to what's happening in my life. God loves me. When I fall down the stairs, he still loves me. When I, when I disobey him, he still loves me. We look for God's love in the things that happen to us. And we say, God, why are you doing that? We question God. God answers back many times, I believe. Not audibly, but he answers back because I love you. Because I love you. I want to take just a few moments tonight, and I, I don't think I'll be lengthy this evening, but I want to share four thoughts, four proofs of God's love, and then I want to shift gears just a little bit for just a couple very small points into the message. Number one, we find this proof in our text. We're going to be looking just in Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5. Would you look there with me? Ephesians 2, verse 4 and 5. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, for with he loved us even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace. Are you saved? Proof number one, he quickened me. He quickened me. He made me alive. When I met Brother Bonnie ten and a half years ago, is that right? Brother Bonnie was a dead man walking. He was dead. He was lost. He grew up with a religious past, but he was lost. He believed the Bible, but he was lost. He believed who Jesus was, but he was lost. But just a little over 10 years ago, God took a dead man and he made him alive. Your testimony tonight, Christian, if you are born again, child of God, is you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. But he quickens you. When I was in grade 7, I came home from school one day. I walked down the hallway of our home, down the hallway past the bathroom, past the laundry in the hallway, and in my room was on the left, my sister's room, my room. I walked out of my room. When I walked out of my room to go back down the hallway, I looked, and there in the middle of the hallway was a tennis ball. Now I'm a hillbilly. I guarantee you there was no tennis racket, brother, within 100 miles of my house. There was not a tennis ball there because I played tennis. There was a tennis ball on my floor because I had a dog, Boston Terrier. And I looked down the hallway, through the living room, into the kitchen, and laying in the kitchen floor was my dog, stone cold asleep. How many have ever heard a Boston Terrier snore? They sound worse than Pastor Rice snoring, and I'm pretty bad. He was snoring. He was out of it. And in my little juvenile 
12-year-old brain, I hatched a plan. I thought, how cool would it be to line up that tennis ball, kick the tennis ball down the hallway, hit the dog, wake him up. I mean, that's, that sounds fun, doesn't it? So that's my plan. So no shoes on in the house. You know, I ran back to kick the tennis ball, and I kicked it about three inches before you got to the tennis ball on the ground. My big toe snapped in half. The bone broke, and the bone went through the toenail. Blood began to forcefully... Colton, you having, you having trouble yet? I know it's... He's, a, he's very visionary when he hears. Blood is spraying, and I began to scream. My loving mother, she's probably watching still, uh, she yelled at me to be quiet. She might have even said a, a real foul word like, shut up. I don't know what she said, but she's, what's wrong with you? Be quiet. What are you screaming about? My dad was on the roof of our house. He was working on fixing the roof on the back porch. My dad heard my scream through the roof. And he knew something was horribly wrong. My dad jumped off the roof. I don't mean he took the ladder. He jumped off the roof, came in the house, came in, and there I am. Blood squirting. They took me to the hospital. They had to kind of almost kind of set my toe a bit. And they had to cut the rest of the toenail off. And then they had to stitch because the bone went through the toe. They had to stitch the quick, what we call the, the meat underneath the nail. They had to put stitches across that. Now, there's a reason they call that quick. There, there's no doubt. There's some feeling there. And I remember that my dad holding me down, the nurses holding me down, and that was just to get the needle near me, Brother Maud. I hate needles. And they're stitching that quick. It's very much alive. You and I were dead, in Christ, dead without Christ. But he made us very much alive. How do I know God loves me? A lot of reasons, but I can look here in this passage and tell you tonight that God loves me because he quickened me. He made me alive. He gave me spiritual life. He's quickened us in Christ Jesus, the Bible says. Letter E there, he quickened us in Christ Jesus. It's an expression of his mercy and his love towards us. In verse 4, we were dead in sins. In verse 5, we were hell bound. Ephesians 2, 1 says, and you. And you hath he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins. We've been made alive. I like the way Matthew Henry says it. Matthew Henry, uh, commentator of years gone by. Matthew Henry said, grace is the soul. Grace in the soul is a new life in the soul. As death locks up the senses, seals up all the powers and faculties, so does the state of sin. As to anything that is good, grace unlocks and opens all and enlarges the soul. Observe, a regenerate sinner becomes a living soul. Praise God for that. 
He lives a life of sanctification, being born of God. He lives in the sense of the law, being delivered from the guilt of sin by pardoning and justifying grace. He hath quickened us together with Christ. Our spiritual life, Mr. Henry said, our spiritual life results from our union with Christ. It is in Him that we live. As Jesus said, because I live, He shall live also. How do I know He loves me? From this passage, because He made me alive. He gave you life. He gave you spiritual life. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. How can we question the love of God? When He said, I love you this much. Oh, I wanted more, God. He gave you everything. He gave everything that you and I might be alive. That we might have life eternal. Greater love hath no man than this, the Bible says in John 15. That a man lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, 8, but God, and I love this verse, probably one of my top Ten favorite verses in the Bible. But God committeth his love towards us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Not while I was getting better. Not once I became spiritual. Not once I cleaned up my life. But while I was yet a sinner, Christ died for us. I didn't have to improve myself. Matter of fact, it wouldn't have made a difference if I did. I didn't have to prove to him I was lovable. Why? I'm not lovable. He decided to love me. He loved me as I was. He died for the ungodly. By the way, he died for those that we wouldn't die for. When you think of the, the most evil and vile people in our world and in the past, we think of people like Timothy McVeigh. Became popular this last year. And uh, pop culture. Can I tell you that as wicked and vile as the crimes that Mr. McVeigh committed. He, I'm sorry, Mr. Dahmer and Mr. Mr. McVeigh bombing the tower. Uh, Mr. Dahmer, who I was thinking of, who killed and ate people and stored body parts, as wicked as all that was. God said, I, I'm, I want to make available to him salvation. Had he trusted Christ? Charles Manson. The vilest person you can think of in the world that we go, oh, that, pff, that's wicked. You know what God says? I love them. I love them. He wants to make them whole. He wants to quicken them. We live in a system that knows nothing of love. We know a perverted understanding of love. But I want to assure you tonight that God loves you. And he doesn't love you because he wants to get something from you. He doesn't love you because he, he's, he's trying to uh, earn something. He just loves you. And his love isn't temporary, it's everlasting. It's forever and forever and forever and forever. How many of you have ever eaten something that you love so much, you ate so much of it, it made you sick and you didn't want to eat it again? You ever been there? What was it, Josh? My food? <laughs> well, as a boy, I, I like sauerkraut. How many of you like sauerkraut? We made sauerkraut when I was a boy. I like sauerkraut. 
I think sauerkraut's awesome, Brother Mike. It's good stuff. I still like it. But as a young boy, about nine years old, I decided to eat a whole jar of sauerkraut. And I ate a whole jar of sauerkraut. I should have good gut bacteria the rest of my life, Brother Krim. I was sick. I was real sick. I mean sick, sick, sick. I didn't want to eat sauerkraut for a long time. God never gets sick of you. He loves us with an everlasting love. For Sean 4, whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, dwelleth God dwelleth with him, and he and God. And we know and believe the love that God hath to us. God is love. And he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. God's proven his love through the Son, Jesus Christ. Number two. The number two proof we find here in this passage quickly tonight. Which we find in verse 6. And he hath raised us up together and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Proof number two tonight. He raised me up. He raised me up. He raised you up. You know, remember when Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross, all of my sin, all of your guilt and my guilt and your sin and my sin was placed on Him. All of it. I don't believe for one second that Jesus made a limited atonement. Those that would try to pervert the gospel to say that Jesus only died for a certain portion of sin. Can I tell you that if that were true, then Jesus Christ is a liar. And we ought to burn this book. Because he said, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. If the Bible doesn't mean that, if, if it doesn't mean everybody, if there's someone who, no, he didn't die for your sin, he died for yours and not for yours, then God's a liar. And he's a charlatan, and he can't be trusted. Rather, he died for all. He bore all sin, every bit of it, all of sin. It was, it was on him on the cross. It was, hold on, when he came off of that cross, was buried with him, was buried with him. I remember, I believe it was my grandmother's funeral, my dad's mom that I preached back in 90, it was 98. My wife and I have been married a few years. I think my memory's right. I remember at the funeral, my, my cousins, I remember them all taking a note and folding that note up, placing that note in the casket. To be buried with her. Can I tell you when Jesus was placed in that tomb. Your sin was placed there with him. The sin that he bore on Calvary. He took to the tomb. So pastor what's the big deal about that? What's the big deal about Jesus. Taking my sin to the tomb. Because he didn't stay there. He rose again. He, 
he rose again, meaning that sin was put ever behind him. In the book of Psalm chapter 103, verse 8, it says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, plenteous in mercy. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dwelt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are but dust. Look at verse 6 again in our text. It says, And hath raised us up together, and made us set together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. I want you to notice that phrase, hath raised us up together. Can I tell you those that know the English language better than I do will tell you that that phrase there uh, is something that is past tense. Not he's going to, but he already did. He hath raised us up. So preacher, when did that happen? When did he raise me up? Three days and three nights after they placed the body of our lovely Lord on the ground, when he rose again, you were raised with him. I was raised with him. He was raised incorruptible. Guess what, Christian? I was raised incorruptible in him. I know he loves me. I see the proof of his love. He, he quickened me. He made me alive. He raised me up with him. If you will, I was nailed to that cross with him. I was buried with him. I was risen with him. He brought within the redemption our new creation. I'm not just saved from hell. And I praise God I'm saved from hell. I'm glad I'm not going to hell. But can I tell you, can I tell you tonight that salvation is not just fire insurance from hell. I, I'm glad that I, there's no chance that I can go to hell. I had, I had two people yesterday tell me to go to hell. Brother Mud, I had one person tell me to do things that were physically impossible. I had, had some very rude people yesterday. But two different people told me to go to hell yesterday. That was their words. Now, I didn't say it. I, 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 here's what I said. I said, God bless you. <laughs> that was my answer as I was trying to get my gospel track. But what I wanted to say was I couldn't go to hell if I wanted to. Amen. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry you want me to go there, but I can't go. I, I have, I'm saved from hell, but I am saved to heaven. I am raised up. And Christian, let's not forget what we have. Let's worship him. Let's praise him for what he's done as we see his love. I'm made alive. I am risen with him. What a wonderful thing. He's forgiven me. He's pardoned me. He's regenerated me. He's adopted me. He's cleansed me. He's given me a home in heaven. He, he's with me. He's never leave me, never forsake me. And one day he's going to come back and say, Hey, come up here. And I'm going. How wonderful. I'm risen with him. All of this is done in Christ Jesus. So here's the question. Why do we live like we're part of this world? Why do we live like the people of earth? When Carrie was giving birth to Rebecca, it was a very 
very traumatic experience. It was very difficult. It was very dangerous few moments. The doctor came, tried one last procedure, and she told me, she said, Mr. Rice, if this doesn't work right here, right now, on this bed in this room, I am doing emergency cesarean section. It was some tense moments. I, I deal with tense moments with humor. Maybe you've understood that about me. But our doctor, she walked in and she had this, you'd almost thought COVID was in the air. She had a mask on. She had this plastic shield on. She had rubber gloves on. She had her hands up like this. And she was a, I can't remember what nationality she was, maybe East Indian, I think, lady, little lady. She came in and she looked like some kind of alien creature because of all the stuff she had on. And she walked in like this. And uh, quietly to the two nurses that were with me, I said, take me to your leader. Uh, they thought it was funny. She didn't think it was funny at all. Uh, Rebecca thought it was funny. She was laughing in the womb, but they didn't think it was funny. <laughs> Carrie was punching me. But Now, we joke about, you know, oh, not of this world, you know, something extraterrestrial. I think they've been shooting down on UFOs here the last couple weeks. Anyway, you and I, we're not of this world. We are not terrestrial. We are extraterrestrial. We belong to heaven. I've already been raised up in him. There's no reason for me to live like I belong. I, I, I've been made an heir of God, joint heirs with Christ. Eternity is my time frame. So many things we could go into tonight, but we see the love of God in him raising us up. Number three here in our text. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 of Ephesians chapter 2. Then in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Number 3 tonight, we see here that he shows grace. He shows kindness. Now, if... I'll let Brother Eric be God tonight. His wife would never hear the end of it if he got to be God. But if Brother Eric were God, and somebody came up and smacked him in the face. I mean, just pop! Brother Eric's a mild-mannered, genteel gentleman. But I have a feeling if you pop Brother Eric in the face one too many times, he's not going to show grace and kindness. There's going to be a point, like, like Popeye. How many of you remember Popeye? Uh, but Mark, you said your dad said Popeye was your favorite. That was my favorite cartoon as a kid. Popeye's chicken. <laughs> That's my favorite chicken now. But Popeye was my favorite cartoon as a kid. And Popeye had the phrase... I've stood all I could stand, and I can't stand no more. And he'd be pushed just to the edge until finally he was ready to fight. Let's just be real honest. If you were God and you had to deal with you, there would come a point. The point would have come a long time ago where I would have said, Brian Rice, you're done. And yet God shows me grace. He shows me kindness. Amen. What is grace? God's riches at Christ's expense. 
Grace, getting something good I do not deserve. Kindness, why? Not because of who you are, but because of who he is. How wonderful here. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Not just here. Here's a little bit of grace. The exceeding riches of his grace and kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Here we see his love for the present and all for the future. It's not I want to give you something now, but not later. He wants to give us all throughout our relationship with him and through all eternity grace, kindness. God shows his love every day. Every day. It is of his mercies that we are not consumed. Mr. Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, that preached during the Great Awakening. Mr. Edwards, who typed out or wrote down, not typed, he, he wrote down his messages. He was very poor of seeing. He would write his messages out word for word. He was not an orator. He was not a great public speaker. He would write out word for word his message. And it's said of Mr. Edwards that he would bend his head where he was face to face. Probably, probably have macular degeneration, some sort of vision problem. And she would get very close to his notes and he would read them. It's said in a monotone voice, Brother Mon. It wasn't about the preaching of Jonathan Edwards. It was about the Holy Spirit of God that led Mr. Edwards to preach the Holy Book of God. And as Mr. Edwards would preach his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, people, not at the invitation, during the service, sinners would crawl on their hands and knees to the altar, begging God to save them. But in his message, he said that we are as a sinner, we are but held by the very spider thread above the very pit of hell. At any moment, could be plunged headlong. Can I tell you, that's where I was. But that's not where I am. Now I have His grace. Now I have His kindness. How wonderful that is. How wonderful that we have the proof of his love. By the way, that grace and kindness speaks of safety. Speaks of assurance. I've been in some dangerous places. I've been in some places that were very, very dangerous. I joke with people once in a while, some of the worst parts of Edmonton. I've been in playgrounds that were more dangerous than Edmonton. I, I've, I've been in some scary situations. I've been in some dangerous situations. But those times I've been in dangerous situations, it was because and while I was sharing the gospel. And I'll be real honest with you, there's never been a time when I've been in a dangerous place sharing the gospel when I've been fearful. Probably because I'm just a, a dummy. But I, I just knew I'm supposed to be here. <laughs> The Lord knows. If he wants me here, then I'm supposed to be here. I remember going in a building, and as I went to go in the building, the police in the police station at the bottom of the building looked at me and said, don't go in here. If you go in that elevator and you do not come back, Chicago police, they told me, we will not come look for you. 
We don't care what happens to you after you go in that door. We're not coming up there. Just so you know, you're on your own. That's not good. Why? Because I like dangerous situations? No, because I needed to share the gospel in that building. Can I tell you that God's grace and kindness are enough? Does that mean that I'm always going to be safe? No. But it means I'll always be where God wants me to be. I'll always be in his will as long as I trust him. By the way, Peter, when he was crucified upside down, he was in God's hand. So, but pastor, hold on a minute. That's pretty dangerous. That, that's not a good thing. He glorified God even in death. We get so hung up on our perceived safety and our perceived enjoyment of life that we forget that it's about God's glory, God's blessing. We see his kindness. We see his grace. The Bible says in Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. By the way, let me, let me stop here just a moment. This isn't the message. But just in case there's anybody here that's struggling with this understanding of eternal security, if you think that you can lose your salvation, then you think God is not able. The Bible tells us right here he's able. Now, what does it say about God if he's able to keep you and he doesn't? Either he's a liar or he's evil. True? One of those things has to be true. So for me to believe, I'd have to throw away so many doctrines, but for me to believe that I could lose my salvation, I've got to either accept that God is evil or God is a liar. That's it. There, there, there's, you can't rectify it any other way. He's able. He's able to keep me from falling, to present me faultless before the presence of glory with exceeding joy. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and forever. Amen. Number four, lastly tonight, verse number 10 in our text, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto Good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. Number four tonight is we see the next proof of God's love for us. He created you. Not only did he create you, but he created you for good works. Good works. For good works. I, I, I love this thought. And number one, we're his workmanship. We're his workmanship. I haven't for years, but years ago I used to build, I used to do some bowyering. How many of you know what bowyering is? Brother Darren's done some bowyering. Uh, I, I used to build longbows. And I several years ago now, probably 16, 17, 18, 19, maybe 19 years ago, I decided to build one for my dad. 
and I didn't use fiberglass. I used God's fiberglass. How many of you know what God's fiberglass is? Bamboo. And I, I did a tri-lamb bow, and I built it out of the front of the bow, the side when you pull the bow, the side people see facing away from you was raw bamboo. And then two other laminations glued together in a coal and a form. And uh, after I glued it into the shape I wanted, then I, I cut it down to shape and profiled and sanded. And I finished that bow. I created it. I crafted it. I wrote, I think, on the top bottom limb or top limb, I can't remember, facing the person holding the bow, Two letters inside of quotation marks. A P and an A. How many of you know what that stands for? Paul. That's what I call my dad most of the time. I call him Paul. One time we were out soul winning together 20 years ago in a church van in West Virginia. And I said something. I called my dad Paul. And as I got out, one of the men said, Marcus, I... Is your first name Paul? I always thought your first name was Marcus. Uh, but I wrote Paul on that bow. I, I created it. It was crafted by me. It was a gift I gave to my dad. Now, most likely that bow will never be worth millions of dollars uh, because I'm not a sought-after bowyer. I'm not a well-known crafter of bows. Because I made it has no intrinsic value to anyone else except my dad. However, there are some things in this world that are much more valuable because who made them? Many years ago, I was sent a gift from a man that I never, I've still never met. A man that I had helped with something I met online and he decided to send me a gift. He was driving through the area where I grew up, and general area, probably within 10 miles as the crow flies across the river from where my family live. And he stopped in a little country store, little everything store, gas station. Uh, as Lois knows what I'm talking about, little general store of everything. They don't exist much up here, but little place, probably half the size of this building inside. And just a little bit of everything, you go in, you can get a few things, and that's it. In the back of the building, there was a, a little wood-burning stove, a little pot-belly stove, and some chairs where you go and sit and play checkers, that kind of place down south. Most of you have no idea what I'm talking about. But anyway, they, there in that area near the wood-burning stove and the checkers, there was an old tub. I think it was an old uh, bin of some kind, maybe a vegetable bin, maybe an old barrel, actually, come to think of it, he told me, but there's a bunch of just old things in there, and there was an old knife, an old hunting knife, and this guy saw that old hunting knife in this little general store in this little town near where he knew that I was from that area, and he thought, I want to do something nice to pay him back. He paid a few bucks, maybe 20, 30, maybe 50 bucks, I don't remember, he bought this old knife. It was in a ratty sheath that was falling apart. The knife was pitted and old. And he sent it to me as a gift, and I, I was overwhelmed. That's really neat. That's really awesome, really cool old knife. And thanks to the wonders of the Internet and the interwebs, I began to look, and there was a name on the knife. The name was Morseth. 
I began to Google Mr. Morseth. I began to look for the knives that he created that looked like that. And I began to learn something that caused me to message that man and say, Sir, I cannot accept this gift. I, I need to mail it back to you. I realized that that knife, although it was rough and although it was a little ugly and although the sheath was falling apart, it was very valuable. Not because of its condition. It was very valuable because who made it. And I told the man, I said, sir, I'm sending this back to you. I said, I can't accept this gift. It's worth a lot of money. And he said, if you mail it back to me, I'm going to send it back up. He said, I bought it for you. I only paid whatever it was for it. He said, it's yours. And I told him, I said, sir, I'm not going to sell it. I said, I'll keep it uh, as a reminder of your love and you know, appreciation, the gift he sent me. Several years later, a friend who's a custom knife maker stole it from my house and made it look brand new again, and his wife made a custom sheath for it. That didn't add value to the knife, but the value, as far as the world's concerned for that knife, is because of the man, the famous man that made it. That's its value. Christian, can I tell you your value? You were created by him. The master. The master made you. The creator of all things. I have his love because he signed me. His signature. He made me. He made you in his image. I was made by God. I was his workmanship. I've been created in Christ Jesus. And notice the phraseology here in Ephesians 2. Unto good works. Created, by the way, means you didn't just happen. It was purposed. It was planned. I was created in Christ for a specific purpose. I need to find out what that is. Ephesians 4.11 in our text, or just a few verses away, a couple chapters away, says, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. God has something for you. He made you. Your worth is because of him, not because of you. These good works we have mentioned here have been preordained or foreordained by God. Titus chapter 3 and verse 8 says, this is a faithful saying. And these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to maintain good works. These things are good and profitable unto men. I want to make a statement. If you have a pen, I encourage you to write it down. I believe a, a powerful statement about this truth. Notice in our text here, we were created, Christian, you and I were created to walk in these good works. Don't miss that. You and I were created to walk in these good works. So, listen to this statement. They await your doing. God created you to walk in those works. 
Can I tell you that they're waiting on you? They await you to do them. They await me to do them. By the way, when I do obey the Lord Jesus Christ, when I follow Him, when I honor Him in my life, I am realizing every step, every work, everything I do is a reminder, God loves me. God loves me. I've got a dear friend who got saved out of serious alcoholism and drunkenness and drugs and horrible, horrible life. Him and his wife, before they got saved, they used to get high on drugs and get angry at each other and shoot at each other with pistols in the house. And I don't mean they were pretending. I mean, they were trying to kill each other. But they would get so high on drugs that amazingly God spared them. They didn't. Several times they tried to kill each other. Somewhere tonight, Brother Hicks is standing behind the pulpit like this, preaching the word of God as an evangelist in the southern U.S. Every time he opens the Bible and lays on the pulpit, it's a reminder. He used to be laying down lines of cocaine. He used to be laying down empty beer bottle after empty beer bottle. He used to be picking up the pistol and trying to kill his dear wife. Praise the Lord. God created him and ordained him to walk in good works. It's a reminder, Christian. I give that example because it's easy for you to see and, and see the difference. But I hope tonight you understand that the difference is in you as well. It's in you as well. So, Pastor, I, I was never a drunkard. I, I was never a drug addict. I never tried to kill my wife. Well, maybe I tried to kill my wife. But I, I, I didn't do those things. Remember, you were dead in trespasses and sins. He made you alive. He didn't just make you alive to make you a scarecrow to do nothing. God made you alive unto good works. And they're waiting for you to do them. Just a couple of thoughts as we close here tonight. How do we walk in good works? How do we walk in good works? Very, very quickly. By showing gratitude for redemption. By showing gratitude for redemption. Giving him praise for what he's done for us. For dying on the cross. For giving our sin. Placing us in the heavenlies. What if you were unsaved on your way to hell tonight? That's where you'd be without Jesus Christ. How do we walk in good works? By showing gratitude for redemption. Next, number two, by surrendering to sanctification. By surrendering to sanctification. I shared the story of my big toe breaking in half. They had to stitch it up. I didn't want them to stitch it up. I didn't want to surrender to have it stitched up. My dad and a bunch of nurses had to hold me down so they could stick needles in me and then they could sew me up. But it needed to be done. It had to be done. You and I need to surrender to letting God set us apart and sanctify us for his purpose. 
to the growth process. First Peter or Second Peter chapter one verse five. I'm not going to turn there tonight, but virtue, on knowledge, on temperance, on patience, on godliness, on brotherly kindness, on love. We need to surrender to that process. Number three, how do we walk in good works? I'm going to close with this thought tonight. By serving. By serving in all areas of good works. What is it God wants you to do? Not what is it God wants the pastor to do. Not what is it God wants your spouse to do or your your child to do or, or Brother Colton to do. What's God want you to do? Hey, teenager, what's God want you to do? Oh, I'm just a teenager. <coughs> David, a teenager, walked down in the valley of Elam and said, you will not defy my God. He affected his whole country. His whole country. Young married couple, what's God want you to do? Older couple here tonight, maybe your kids are grown. What's God want you to do? What is it God wants you to do? Has he set something aside that he said, okay, I've got some works for you to do. At least once a week, sometimes a couple times a week, Colton and I will sit in my office, our office now, And I'll say to Colton, hey, here's some things I want you to do this week. He'll pull out a notebook. Okay. I'd like to get this, 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 and this done. Here you go. Now, I may ask him, hey, did we get that done? Is that, but that's not my work. That's his work. I believe God has work for you. He has good works for us. He's got them set aside. He created you unto good works. When God calls, just like little Samuel, the day's gone by. Won't you answer? What do you want, Lord? Okay. You know why you don't want to answer? Because you don't want to do what God wants you to do. I know. You know why? Because I don't always want to do what God wants me to do. How do we walk in good works? By serving in every area. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity tonight to walk in the works that you've prepared for us. Lord, we could spend so long talking about the proofs of love that you have for us. Lord, I praise you. I thank you. I want to worship you tonight for your goodness and your love. As well, Lord, tonight, I want us to walk in those works you have for us. Lord, I believe with all my heart tonight that you have prepared some works for every one of us. And, Lord, a lot of them don't get done. Because you prepared them for us, for no one else. God, would you help us to be surrendered tonight? Help us to walk in them. Help us to surrender to sanctification. Help us to praise you for our redemption. God, may we walk in that love.
that you've proven over and over and over again in scriptures. Lord, would you be glorified tonight during this time of invitation as we set aside some time just to worship you, to praise you, to yield to your purpose. May that be the case. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Remember Colton. Let's sing together. 301. Only trust him. Number 301. you're so good to us Lord we offer our praise and our worship to you for you're worthy of it Lord may we do more than sing your praises may we do more than lift up your name in this place with our brothers and sisters in Christ but may we publish your name among the heathen may we speak of your goodness every day may we be reminded of your love as we tell others of it. And God, may we find those works that you have for us. May we pick it up on our shoulder. And may we walk in that path and that plan that you have made just for us. How wonderful that purpose, that fulfillment. Bless us now, Lord. In your precious name we pray. Amen. <laughs> I just want to thank uh, Pastor and Colton uh, for giving me this opportunity to speak up here. But I also want to thank God foremost for giving me the strength to speak up here tonight. Amen. Okay. Um, now please turn to your Bibles to Job chapter 1. And we will be reading verses 1 to 21. Job chapter 1, verse 1. Uh, there was a man in the land of Uz, whose name was Job, and that man was a perfect and upright 
and one that feared God and eschewed evil. Which, um, and they were born unto him seven sons and three daughters. His substance also was 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, and 500 yoke of oxen, 500 she-asses, and very great households, so that this man was great of, of the men of the east. And his sons went and feasted in their houses, everyone his house, and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and to drink with them. And it was so when the days of their feasting were gone about. The drove sent and sanctified them and rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, It may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus did Joseph continually. And now there was a day when the sons of God came to presence with them themselves before the Lord. And Satan came among them, and the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down it, the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job, that there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and upright man, one that, sh that feared, feareth God and eschewed evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Hast thou made a hedge about him, about his house, and about all the things ha and he hath on every side, that hast blessed the work of his hand, and, and his substance in is increased in the land? But put forth thine hand now, and touch all that he hath, and he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the, of the Lord. And there was a day when his sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in the eldest brother's house. And there came a messenger unto Job, and said the the oxen were plowing and the asses feeding beside them, and the sevens fell upon them and took them away. Yea, they have slain the servants with the edge of the sword, and I only escape alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there was, there came also another and said, The fire of God has fallen down from heaven, hath burned up the sheep and the servants, and consumed them, and I only escape to tell thee. While he, while he was yet spe speaking, there came also another and said, the Chaldeans made out of the three bands and fell upon the camels and have carried them away and yea, and slain the servants with the edge of the sword. And I only escaped and alone to tell thee. While he was yet speaking, there came also another and said, thy sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. And behold, there was a great wind from the wilderness and smote the four corners of the house and it fell upon the young men, and that they are dead, and only I escaped alone to tell thee. And Job arose and went his mantle, and shaved his head, and fell upon the ground and worshipped, and said, Naked uh, came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return thither. And the Lord gave, and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And in all this, Job sinned not, nor charged God foolishly. Um, and today's message is where your faith lies. Um, here we see Job, a man who had almost everything. He would become, he would be someone who I'm sure we all would want to be like today. Um, Job was wealthy, had a big happy family, um, and had a great relationship with God. And the Bible describes him as perfect and upright. 
Um, you can see that Job had pretty much everything he could have wanted. Um, but on top of that, he had something that I'm sure all of us admire. And that brings us to our first point, Job's faith. Um, see that Job had many material things. Uh, but despite that, he was a materialistic person. He was someone who knew where all his wealth came from. And he praised the one who provided him every day. Um, where do we put in our faith? Um, in our jobs? How much money we make? Or how happy we are? Or do we put our faith in the one who provided all of that? Um, point A, he was grateful. Uh, Job didn't take what he had for granted. It doesn't say anywhere specifically that he was openly grateful for what he had, but he wanted, wanted this to be true because you see him described as fearing God, not someone who just took things for granted. Um, not, now how many of us are gu guilty of ungratefulness? Uh, you might find yourselves living in a good situation, but are you thankful for it? Um, let's, let's always remember to be thankful for the good situation God has given us. Um, now while Job is seen having almost a perfect life, we know that that doesn't, that doesn't last very long. Uh, we see in verses 6 to 12 that Satan tells God that Job only loves him because of the abundance that God has provided him. God then tells Satan to test his theory for plaguing Job, and we see God's, uh, Job's good situation turn for the worse. And that brings me to the letter B, a bad situation. Um, please uh, read Job 1 to one, Job 1, 13 to 19. And then um, uh, within mere moments, we see uh, Job lose, loses everything he had, his kids, his wealth, and later on, even his health. This is not the first time we've seen someone in the Bible suffer loss. But in this instance, we find that suffering of someone who did nothing to deserve it. It had, Job had every right to be bitter. He had every right to just give up. But we see that that is not the case. Uh, instead, we see in verse 21 um, that Job lifts up his eyes and says, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Um, and we say that we have this kind of faith. Um, how many of us can say that during a trial, um, instead of blaming the situation or, or blaming God, we instead say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Uh, point C, Job calls out to God. Uh, in Job 30, verses 20, um, it says, um, I cry unto thee, and thou dost not hear me. I stand up, and thou regardest me not. Um, Job calls out to God, saying that God has neglected him and forgotten about him. Um, we often go to other things when we're in bad situations, but here, or Job went to God and called out to him when he was suffering. It was no longer endurable. Um, and uh, please turn to Job 30, 24, uh, verses 24 to 31. Um, how be it will, uh, verse 24, how be it he will not stretch out his hand to grave through the, the cry and his destruction. Do not I weep for him that was in trouble? Was not my soul grieved for the poor? Was I, 
When I looked for good, then evil came unto me. When I waited for the light, there came darkness. My bowels boiled and rested not. The days of the affliction prevented me. I went mourning without the sun. I stood up and I cried in the congregation. I am, I am a brother to dragons and companion to owls. My skin is black upon me and my bones are burned up with heat. And my harp is also turned into mourning. And my, or and my organ into the voice of them that weep. Um, here you see that uh, Job uh, is suffering and he uh, called, uh, called on to God saying that he, his suffering is no longer endurable. And God speaks to him in Job 38 to 4. He says, Where wast thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. And also in Job 38, 12, it says, Hast thou commanded the morning since thy days and caused the day spring to know his place? Um, God asked Job a series, series of questions about how things operate. And Job understands that God is in complete control of everything and every single detail and attention that goes around. And that God was still working even when he's in the terrible situation. Sometimes we'll never really understand why God does what he does because we simply can't comprehend and it's just beyond us. And all we can do is have faith that God is in control and that we know that all things work together for good to them to love God and for them who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. Uh, point two, Abraham's faith. And uh, please turn to Genesis 12, verses 1 to 4. Genesis 12, 1-4. And now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, and unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make thee of a great nation, and I will bless thee, and make thy name great. And thou shalt be a blessing, and I will bless them that bless thee, and curse thee him that curseth thee. In thee shall all the families of earth be blessed. So Abram departed, as the Lord had spoken unto him, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old when he departed out of Haran. And God tells Abraham to go to a land, but doesn't tell Abraham where it is. But yet, Abraham packed up and left immediately without questioning God. And just, put, just putting his faith in God and relying on God to show him where to go. God sometimes calls us, but doesn't tell us, tell us where the final destination is. That, so that we can step out in faith and trust God that he will lead us lead us there and we don't have to worry. In Genesis 20, 22, verses 1 to 9, God tells Abraham to go to the land of Moriah and to offer his son as a burnt offering to God. And Abraham did not question God once again. And he rose up early in the morning and he went to where God wanted him to go. Also in Genesis 20, 22, verses 9 to 24, Abraham was ready to give up his son, which God promised to multiply his seed. Um, are we ready to give what we value so much to the Lord? Are we ready to give up our job, our friends, maybe even our family for the cause of Christ? Abraham didn't know what the future held, but, but yet he still trusted God. 
we can learn from, the, from his example and do the same. Lastly, my third point, our faith. Um, in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Um, God loves us so much that he gave his only, only son to die on the cross to be a propitiation for our sins, that we will have eternal life with him if we believe in him. Um, Ephesians 2.8.9, for by grace ye are saved through faith, that not of yourselves, but it's a gift of God, not of works, that lest, that lest any man should boast. That it's only by faith through Christ that we may have eternal life, and it's only by him and nothing more. Amen. And God saved us from eternal damnation, and he can definitely save us from our day-to-day -day stresses. Um, where does our faith lie? Is it in our job? Is it in a person? Or is it in ourselves? Tonight, we just looked at a few examples of men who put their faith in the one who could do all that they needed. Christians, where does our faith lie? Uh, let's pray. Um, Lord Jesus, uh, thank you for this opportunity that you have given uh, me to speak up and to use me as a mouthpiece to, um, to give out your word, Lord. Uh, thank you, Lord. And Lord, uh, please um, um, burn this message into their hearts, Lord, and help them and uh, speak to them uh, using this message, Lord. And uh, be with us throughout this day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Bon. And uh, reminding me of the fact, you know, everyone in this world, everyone in this world has faith in something. Uh, if you aren't a Christian, you, you have faith in something. Uh, the irreligious, the atheist has faith in something. Uh, they have faith in evolution that you know they believe uh, that we came about by accident and uh, everyone has faith in something is what you're trusting in reliable is it uh, something you can rely on and trust so I'll have a uh, Josh Dino come and come share with us the word of God thank you okay well good evening everybody um, that was a great message we just heard, especially since that was uh, Bond's first time. Uh, definitely a blessing hearing that, and uh, that's a, it's actually a really good question, where your faith lies. Uh, before I get into my message, I kind of want to talk about that a little bit, because um, I feel like that's a huge problem that many people have, where your faith lies. And um, that's not really something that we think about, right? We don't really think of, you know, where does my faith lie, because you assume that your faith lies in what you think it lies in, right? But in reality, if we uh, examine ourselves and we think, well, where does my faith actually lie? You might find that when you follow that uh, little rabbit trail, uh, it'll lead to a job. Or, you know, it'll lead to a person. As, as Bond mentioned, it might even lead back to yourself. So uh, just an encouragement uh, to everybody before I start with my message is to uh, uh, examine yourself and uh, find where your faith lies. And if your faith isn't lying where uh, you know it should be lying, then, uh, of course, take the steps uh, to deal with that. Uh, but also, uh, if you see someone else around you that you see having that uh, similar issue, let's be an encouragement, right? As Christians, we're commanded to be an encouragement to those uh, that might be struggling or might be having a hard time, okay? Um, so we'll get right to my message here. If I could have everybody stand, uh, and let's turn to Luke chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at uh, verses 4 to 13. Luke 4, 4 to 13. Okay. 
And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that men shall not live by bread alone, but by every... Oh, sorry. Um, Luke chapter 4, 1 to 13. Um, and Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing. And when they were ended, he afterward hungered. And the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into an high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem. And set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, uh, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the, all, all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I... Humbly come before you, Lord. Thank you uh, once again for giving uh, me this opportunity, Lord, to uh, preach in front of the, uh, this body of believers. Father, I thank you for the message that we just heard. Father, I pray that, uh, as Bond said, Father, that you burn it into our hearts, Lord. And I pray uh, for this message to come as well, Father. Please give me the words to speak, Father. Uh, please uh, bless me with wisdom, Father. I pray that the words I speak not be uh, my own words, Father, but uh, your words through me. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. Now, temptation in its many forms is a reality that all of mankind has to face. Now, the scary part is that it has the power to lead us astray if we're not prepared and equipped to face it head on. Now, as Christians, it is our responsibility to ready ourselves for when that time comes. And you'll notice that I said when that time comes, not if that time comes, because that is a guarantee. Now, one of the best examples that we can look at in the Bible, as we just read, is when Satan tempted Jesus in the wilderness. Here we see our Lord being faced with temptations from the father of lies himself, and we see how Jesus uh, dealt with those temptations. Now we first see Jesus in verses 1 and 2 undergoing spiritual preparation. He isolates himself and goes into the wilderness uh, away from the distractions and comforts of society. He spent 40 days with nothing but communion with the father, and in this we can see the highlighted importance of spiritual preparation. Jesus denied his fleshly desires of food and sustenance to make room for his spiritual needs. He showed us the importance of putting your spirit before your flesh. Now, um, fasting, prayer, reading God's word, these are all examples of things that we ourselves can do to help aid in our spiritual preparation. Uh, when we're taught to read our Bible, to pray every day, uh, it's not just a fun little song that we like to sing in Sunday school. Uh, these are necessary building blocks that we need if we want to see victories against temptation. I'll say that again. These are necessary building blocks that we need if we want to see victories against temptation. Now what we're going to do is we're going to analyze uh, the, these temptations themselves. We're going to take a look at the events that took place. And with that, I'm going to uh, go on to my first point. We see the temptation of physical needs. The temptation of physical needs. In verses 3 and 4, we see Satan making his first 
attack. Recognizing Jesus' hunger, after 40 days of fasting, he tries to attack his physical needs uh, to lead him away from his purpose. Satan suggests to uh, turn the stones into bread, knowing full well that Jesus had uh, all the power to do that. Uh, he, He tries to appeal to his hunger, to his immediate desire. Now, instead of falling for this temptation, Jesus, in his unwavering wisdom, responded by highlighting the importance of his spiritual sustenance instead of his uh, bodily cravings. Now, I myself, I've been, uh, I've been putting on a little bit of weight so I can personally testify uh, to that irresistible feeling of hunger, right? Now, if you think about it, uh, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days, 4-0, 40 days without any food. We have to realize that he was most definitely feeling hunger uh, in its rawest form. Uh, This wasn't hunger in the sense of, uh, I want to grab a quick snack. Uh, This was hunger in the sense that his body was in desperate need for food. And still we see Jesus. Uh, In in Matthew 4, 4, a separate account of this, uh, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. This powerful response revealed his dependence on the word of God as the true source of nourishment for the soul. Jesus shows us that uh, the sustenance uh, for the spirit is much more uh, vital than the sustenance for the body. This encounter teaches us a, uh, a, a lesson on the importance of uh, aligning our priorities with God's perspective. While our physical needs are important, our spiritual needs ought to take precedence over that. Uh, in, in the same way that we take care of our bodies, by nurturing them with, a, well, with food and with, and with the rest, uh, we need to nurture our souls with the Word of God, right? Uh, by applying this, we can fortify ourselves against the temptations that seek to destroy us and lead us away from God's purpose. Secondly, my second point here, we see the temptation of power and authority, the temptation of power and authority. In verses 5 through 8, we encounter the second temptation that Satan presents to Jesus. Recognizing Jesus' divine identity and purpose, the devil makes a bold offer. He promises Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their authority if only Jesus would worship him. This, uh, this temptation uh, was seeking to entice Jesus with, uh, with, with power, with, uh, with, with uh, recognition, with, with dominion. Yet Jesus responded once again with unwavering conviction. Uh, he declares that worship and service are to be offered to God and God alone. Jesus' response exposes the dangerous trap of seeking power and recognition for selfish purposes. He understands that uh, true authority and honor uh, come from God alone. By rejecting Satan's offer, as we saw, Jesus teaches us uh, the vital lesson of aligning our desires and our ambitions with God's will. Seeking power, seeking influence, seeking uh, recognition for selfish reasons leads to moral compromise, and it will distort our understanding of true authority and worship. Now, we may encounter similar temptations to pursue uh, power. Uh, to pursue prestige and worldly success at any cost. However, Jesus' example reminds us that true fulfillment and significance are found in wholeheartedly worshiping and serving God. Our ambitions and our desires uh, should be rooted in honoring Him uh, and advancing His kingdom and aligning ourselves with His purposes. Uh, The dangers of seeking power and uh, recognition for selfish gain are evident. Still, when we submit ourselves to God's authority... 
And if we commit to serving him faithfully, we discover a deeper, more meaningful path uh, that leads to true fulfillment and eternal significance. Chasing power, chasing prestige, chasing uh, uh, physical monetary wealth uh, for a season can be satisfying, right? Uh, for a little bit, uh, right, when you buy your super yacht and, 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 and your mansion, you, uh, you feel pretty good, right? I mean, you feel like you made it, but eventually, as uh, we see in many examples of uh, people that have been wealthy and have committed suicide, uh, it, it doesn't fill you. Right? There's always going to be that hole uh, that, you, that you have to constantly keep filling. You've got to keep shoveling dirt in that hole. But that hole will never be filled uh, without Jesus, without God, without uh, uh, truly realizing uh, uh, who, who you are in, uh, in, in God's eyes. Right? And so, uh, Christian, I want to encourage you that while uh, it, is, uh, it is necessary uh, to, uh, to pursue a monetary wealth in the sense that uh, we need to pay bills and uh, we need to provide for our families, uh, let's not make that, uh, let's not put that in the forefront of our minds. Uh, let's, uh, let's focus on the eternal rather than, uh, than the temporal, okay? Now, uh, lastly, I want to take us to our last point, point number three. Uh, we see the, tem- uh, the tempting of God's protection, Okay, tempting God's protection. We encounter the third and final temptation Satan presents to Jesus in verses 9 through 12. Now this time the devil takes Jesus uh, to the pinnacle of the temple and he challenges him to jump, stating that God's angels will protect him from harm. Now here Satan manipulates Jesus uh, into, uh, into testing God's faithfulness and protection. However, Jesus responds once again with unwavering faith and wisdom, affirming that one must not put the Lord to the test. Jesus' response teaches us these invaluable lessons about faith, trust, and obedience to God's promises. Uh, he understands that true faith does not require uh, any testing of God's faithfulness or, uh, or manipulating his protection. Instead, it rests on that unwavering trust in his character and his sovereignty. Jesus recognizes that testing God's provision and protection, that stems from a lack of faith. Seeking signs uh, or, or miraculous interventions uh, just to prove his presence. Now, uh, in our lives, we may face many moments of doubt or uncertainty, uh, or uh, where we're tempted to test God's faithfulness, or uh, to seek tangible, to, to seek visible proof of his presence. However, this example that we see from Jesus reminds us that our faith is not dependent on miraculous signs or testing God's promises. Instead, it requires steadfast trust in his character and unwavering obedience to his word. Hebrews 11.1, 1, a verse that I'm sure all of us know, now faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Now let us learn from Jesus' response and uh, cultivate a deep faith that trusts God's faithfulness even when circumstances may seem uh, uncertain. May we resist the temptation to, to test or manipulate God's provision instead choosing to faithfully follow his word and surrendering our lives to his perfect plan. Through faith, trust, and obedience, we find the strength and security to overcome the trials of temptation and experience the abundant life that God uh, has prepared for us. Now, as we, as we navigate the complexities of life, uh, it is crucial to apply the lessons uh, that we learn from Christ's temptation to our present-day struggles. Uh, we must first recognize the, the everyday temptations that we face. And uh, these may be, uh, uh, this may include the temptation to maybe uh, compromise our values. Uh, indulge in worldly uh, pleasures or uh, prioritize our desires over God's will. Understanding these temptations allows us to be ready for them, to prepare for them when they come. 
As we journey through this world, we will encounter various forms of temptation. By following Christ's example, uh, relying on God's strength, and anchoring ourselves in his word, we can overcome these temptations that seek to derail our faith and lead us astray. We are called to be uh, a people who stand uh, firm in righteousness, uh, who stand firm in righteousness, rooted in the truth and guided by the principles of God's kingdom. Let's commit ourselves to daily seeking God's presence, uh, nurturing our souls as we read through uh, the study of his word and, and, and walking in uh, obedience to his commands uh, with his grace and the lessons we have learned, we can withstand these tests of temptation and live lives that honor and glorify Him. As we do so, we will experience that fullness of joy, peace, and spiritual growth that comes from aligning ourselves uh, with God's purpose. With unwavering faith, uh, may we uh, embrace these lessons from Christ's temptation and live as victors in the face of every test that comes our way. Oftentimes, one of the uh, greatest temptations that uh, I personally, myself, in my uh, personal life uh, have seen is uh, that, that, that second point that I had was the uh, temptation, oh, sorry, the, the, that third point of uh, tempting God's protection, right? Um, there were times when uh, my faith was uh, wavering and I would often ask God for a, a physical sign so I could just know. If I just saw this one little thing, if you could just show me this one little thing, then I would have 100% full trust in you. And obviously we know that that's, that's not how that works and uh, how, how prideful and how arrogant that is to doubt God's protection. Because we know that uh, uh, 2,000-something years ago, uh, God showed us his purest form of protection by sending down uh, his, his, his one, his only son, God incarnate, in the flesh to come and to die for our sins. Uh, our sins, uh, people that uh, don't even uh, deserve an ounce of it, right? People that uh, uh, fall to temptation every day. People that, uh, uh, that, that, that spit on the face of God's kindness. And all those years ago, he died uh, for you and for me. Christian, if you don't have that uh, assurance, if you don't uh, uh, know that uh, you, you sit firmly in God's protection, may I encourage you uh, to simply just accept him. Uh, there's no, uh, there's no uh, waiver you have to sign. There's no, uh, there's no uh, multiple 10-step uh, program to uh, uh, seeing salvation. All you need to do is accept him because God's protection is sure. God's protection is a guarantee. You can't guarantee that you're going to wake up tomorrow. You can't guarantee that when you hop in your car and you drive home, you're going to make it, right? And of course, God, uh, Lord willing that uh, we all make it home safely. But um, my point is that there, is, there are no guarantees in this life. The only guarantee that we have is that uh, our, our faith, uh, if put in Christ Jesus, uh, will, will lead us to heaven. And someday when we die, or, uh, if the Lord comes back, that we see him in heaven. That is the one guarantee that I can assure you from behind this pulpit that, that we will see. Okay? Now, uh, of course, with unwavering faith, uh, let's embrace these lessons from Christ's temptations so we can be victors in the face of every test that comes our way. Uh, let's bow our heads in prayer. Uh, dear Heavenly Father, I thank you uh, once again for the opportunity to be here, Lord. I thank you for uh, uh, giving us that uh, protection, Father. I thank you uh, for um, uh, uh, coming uh, to the cross, Father, and uh, dying for our sins, Father, knowing that we don't deserve it, Lord. I thank you for uh, your love and your kindness. I thank you for this lesson, Father, that we can learn uh, on dealing with temptations that you uh, showed us yourself, Lord. I pray that uh, we can uh, learn much from this, Father, and uh, when those temptations in our life come, Father, I pray that we're able to uh, uh, battle them, Father, and gain victories over these temptations, Lord. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.